Please turn with me to John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. You can also read along on page 9 of um, your bulletin. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars and the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. This is the word of the Lord. Our opening series will focus on the question, who is Jesus? And we're looking into John's account of the gospel because John's gospel seeks to answer exactly that question, who Jesus is. If this is the first time you've ever read from this book, you'd notice several interesting things about Jesus that comes up as a pattern throughout the book. Number one, John uses lots of miracles and signs uh, mixed with extraneous details. Uh, For instance, he changes water to wine in this passage, but if you look in verse 6 of this chapter, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. There's all these extraneous details. The second thing you see is, look how Jesus is portrayed here in this passage. There's chaos, there's desperation, but Jesus, he's fully resolved. He never flinches. He's completely reserved. And when he performs the miracle, you never see him saying, okay, he's gonna, I'm going to roll up my sleeves now. Stand back, everybody. You don't see him doing some mystical chant. You don't see him doing some crazy uh, witch doctor dance. He never acts like a showman in any of these miracles. Lastly, you never see the miracles stand alone. The miracles always, always are followed by a teaching or are preceded by a teaching. So the miracle merely provides a context for the actual teaching itself. So why does the author write like this? John isn't writing fiction. In the ancient literary genre, you you never include, especially in this day, this time period, you would never include these extraneous details, the 20 to 30 gallons, the six stone water jars, these ancillary details. You would never include that. And uh, this is the author's way of telling you that this really happened. This actually happened. John's writing news. He's writing history. John's pointing you to the person of Jesus, who he really is, to connect you to Jesus uh, and it, in order that you discover spiritual reality, that you would discover spiritual truth. Today, it's acceptable to say that 
you're looking for a spiritual reality, that you're looking for a spiritual truth. Everybody's looking for that. But everybody's looking to experience the thrill of spiritual reality without the responsibility of spiritual reality. Everybody is looking for the thrill, the joy of spiritual reality without the commitment that comes with spiritual reality. Today they say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. In other words, I'm looking to experience the joys of spiritual discovery, but without any responsibility. And, and this leads to just frustration, a lot of thrill-seeking. People are becoming joy addicts. More than any other time in history, joy has been tied to temporal things such as money and sex and power and success. Guy de Maupassant, he was one of the greatest writers of the short stories in the 19th century literary genre. But he became an utterly tragic, tragic figure. Here's how one writer summarized de Maupassant's rise and fall. Within 10 years, he rose from obscurity to fame. His material possessions bespoke a life of affluence. A yacht in the Mediterranean, a large house on the Norman coast, a luxurious flat in Paris. It was said of him that critics praised him, men admired him, and women worshipped him. Yet at the height of his fame, he went insane, a condition brought on many believed by a sexually transmitted disease. On New Year's Day in 1892, he tried to cut his throat with a letter opener, and he lived out the last weeks of his life in a private asylum on the French Riviera. After weeks and months of mindless utterances and debilitating pain, he died at the age of 42. De Maupassant penned his own epitaph, I coveted everything and taken pleasure in nothing. What de Maupassant was saying was this, I sought out the thrill of spiritual reality all my life. I experienced every kind of worldly pleasure, but I never found joy. There are three things we're going to learn today from this passage. The banquet, the master, the wedding. The banquet, our hope. The master, our desperate case. And the wedding, our complete, utter assurance. First, the banquet. And we see this, uh, let's start with verse 11, the end. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Why did Jesus choose? As his first miracle to turn water into wine at a wedding. Why the wine? I mean, this was supposed to be Jesus' self-introduction. This was supposed to be his calling card, his, uh, his trademark. In the Old Testament, wine represented the joy that comes when God is near, when God is present. Joy that comes from experiencing spiritual truth. Anywhere you see wine in the Old Testament, it's a joy reference. It's a looking ahead to a time when, when God would come near and reside with his people. And it's weird because most people today, when you think about joy, they don't think about God coming near. They think about judgment. They think about fear. But it's quite the opposite. Joy in the Bible is a spiritual thing. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 9. Let me read this to you. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast a rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. What is Isaiah saying here? There's going to be a day when the death of death, 
the triumph of salvation, the freedom of forgiveness, it will be the Lord himself one day wiping away the tears on our eyes. And there's going to be celebration and there's going to be joy. What that means is today, if we're frustrated because you look at yourself and you feel like a spiritual mess, you're probably closer than you've ever been to experiencing spiritual reality because you understand the reality that you can't find the fullness of lasting joy here. There's going to come a day. There will come a day when poor, you're going to be able to come to a banquet of choice meats. That if you're thirsting, there's going to be a banquet table of aged wine for you. The finest of wines. That's the richness of that banquet. If you're sick, you're going to be healed. If you've suffered loss, one day all of that is going to come to an end and it will be restored. If you've ever wept, God himself is going to wipe away the tears of your eyes. If you've been disgraced in your life, God will restore your reputation. And if you are not whole, one day you will be whole again. The prophets of the Old Testament, they knew this. But centuries came and went, and liberation never, never came in full. The people, were, the people that these prophets were speaking to, they were brought into exile. They were taken in captivity. They were taken as slaves. They experienced disaster, homelessness. And the prophets, eventually all of them died. And then you come to chapter 2 of John, and what do you see? There's a banquet. And uh, they, the joy is running out because the wine is running out. In the context of a Hebrew wedding where joy is taken for granted, joy is a given, there was no more joy. It was an ensuing disaster. Why the miracle? John's trying to show us that this event is a microcosm of our lives. The representation of our anticipation Our desperation, the tension, the frustration of years and years of spiritual searching and coming up empty. Do you follow me? Do you understand what I'm saying? The years, we're we're always searching for spiritual reality. And when you're looking for it on your own, there's frustration. And the passage is saying is this. This is life without the presence of God. It's a huge wedding banquet without any wine. You can experience all the pleasure, the temporary joys, but in the end, you're thirsty. There's a longing for more, a desperate sense of anxiety. There's something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. And you think going to church is going to solve the problem, but sometimes, actually, let's be honest, sometimes it actually makes it worse. It's almost that something terrible, terribly is missing. What does Jesus do? Chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Jesus has these jars. They're intended for religious uh, cleansing. They're set aside for religious cleansing. And he has them filled with water. And what does he do? He transforms them into wine. Our, our hope for true joy is not in these rituals for cleansing. It's actually what Jesus does inside. He just merely asks for them to be filled. No ritual, no ceremony. He changes what's inside. Religion is outside in. I have to write myself on the outside in order to feel good on the inside, in order to earn God's favor, in order to have a sense of worth. And if you live like that, there's going to be no miracle in life. 
you're not going to sense or feel the power of the Lord working. There's no miracle. There's no discovery. There's going to be no transformation. You can tell when someone's living like that because their hearts are cold. They, they live heavy lives and, and very empty, empty lives. But the gospel, the gospel's inside out. I'm utterly, radically changed on the inside. And what was once now plain on the outside is changed into something robust and flavorful and rich and amazing. That's freedom. The banquet represents life. In all of our pursuits, our spiritual search, and our need for lasting joy. And this passage, it teaches us that the world, everything that the world promises, one day going to run dry. It's going to be good for a while, but it's going to run dry. You know, there's at least two truths in life that are absolutely a given. We're all going to grow older in this room, and we're all going to die. But this brings the possibility of hope, of a joy that can last forever. That's the hope. That's the banquet. Now, the second part, second point, is the master, the master of the banquet. And this shares, shows us our desperate case. And you see this is in verses 8 to 10. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Jesus transforms water into wine. And he first directs the servants to draw some of it and take it to the master of the banquet. Now, by this point, everyone's been drinking for a while. And after some time, you know, you can't really tell the difference between good wine and bad wine, you know, lesser quality wine. Only one person in the entire banquet really, really knows. And that's the master, the master of the banquet. He's the most desperate person in that room. His life depended on this wine. He was the man responsible for uh, the success of this banquet. A typical Hebrew wedding could last anywhere between three to eight days. Can you imagine drinking and partying for three to eight days straight? And so the newlywed couple would entrust the the responsibility of ensuring that this banquet would be a success to the master of the banquet. He had to make sure that everything is going to go just right. And in this incredibly close community where everybody knows each other, social connections are deep, his entire social reputation rested on the success of this wedding. The reputation of the bridegroom and the bride were also at stake, but the master of the banquet was the most desperate person at the wedding. And running out of wine in those days, it was a public disgrace. It was a community crime. It was a social, social offense to everyone there present. He could get sued for this. He could not only lose his job, the entire wedding was in jeopardy, sure, but the master of the banquet was coming undone. And the wine ran out, along with his good fortune, his good reputation. Everything that this man could place his identity in was about to crumble. Now, we think that we become desperate cases when we're at our worst, when we're not on our A-game, when we make poor judgment calls, when we commit bad mistakes and error. But that's not what the Bible says about our desperation. That's not what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, he wrote Romans chapter 7, who wrote a good part of the, actually most of the New Testament, at the spiritual height of his life, after many churches have been planted, when he's closest now to the time of his death, he calls himself a body of death. This is Paul at his best. 
And what he cries out, he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who can free me? Who can save me? Who can liberate me? Not when I'm at my worst, but when I'm at my best. That's Romans chapter 7. He says, I'm struggling with sin. Paul, the apostle, who wrote a good part of the New Testament, who planted all those churches, Time magazine rated him to be one of the top five most influential voices in world history. Says, at the pinnacle of his spiritual life, who can rescue me from this body of death? This is me at my best. Not at my worst, at my best. Oftentimes, even when we're at our best, on our own, we're thrown into unrest. We're thrown into anxiety. Spiritual thirst. There's no peace. And we're going to pay a heavy price to find that peace. We're going to risk our finances. We're going to risk our reputation. We're going to risk our purity. Everything we value to experience that joy. But the Bible teaches, look at the master of the banquet. All our attempts, even at our best, will run dry. And that's going to put us in a state of desperation. In other words, you are a flawed master of the banquet. You can only achieve so much joy relying on your own abilities, your own, appro- your own pursuits, but in the end, you're going to feel alone and you're going to feel desperate. There are going to be times like that. Our suffering shows us how desperate we are, how weak we really are. But Jesus is saying, I am the true master of the banquet. When I bring joy, it's going to be perfect and it's going to last forever. The wine, the joy that I bring, it's never going to run out. It's going to be plentiful. It's never going to taste bitter. It's never going to turn to vinegar. It's always going to be robust and flavorful and free. Jesus saved this man's reputation. He saved his life. And it's a fuller joy. It's a fuller joy because it came out of suffering. It's not this one-dimensional joy that we often see, you know, because you're naive about what's out there in the real world. Once you've suffered and then you've tasted the, the joy that Jesus brings, you know, you suffered spiritually. But when Jesus comes near to you, you know. You know it's good. You know it's freeing. Think about it. Remember the movie Braveheart? What makes Braveheart, movies like Braveheart and Gladiator, such good movies? I mean, it would not have been a great movie if there was no suffering. So the suffering actually becomes this context where joy can be tasted, true, lasting joy can be experienced. You know, from the beginning of these movies to the end, they're suffering. And this is why the triumph at the end is always so much better. Every other religion interprets suffering as a punishment for sin. Every other religion says suffering is something that happens only to bad people. But think about it. Look at the gospel. Who is the single most perfect person that ever walked the earth? The single most perfect person, the most perfect worshiper on earth. It was Jesus. And yet he lived a horrible life. He suffered all his life. He died a horrible death. Only the gospel uses our suffering to point to lasting joy. And in heaven, there is joy. But the joy is even greater. It's even fuller than that. Why? Because it was born out of suffering. Think about it. You know, it's born out of your death. In your death, you pass into this eternal joy. With your suffering comes stories of courage. It comes, come, it all pointing to the greatest story of courage. In your suffering, there's going to be stories of passion and of love, all pointing to the greatest story of passion and love. In your suffering, there are going to be stories about sacrifice, 
all pointing to the greatest story of sacrifice. If the joy is fuller because the Spirit connects Jesus' courage and Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' suffering to your fears and your suffering, that's what you see. Heaven would not be as complete if there was no suffering on earth. And so the context of this wedding, you know, there's this banquet, and the joy is running out, it's threatening to run out. Once that master tastes of the wine, he knows it's even better. He says, you have saved the best for last. There are people in this room right now worried about their futures, worried about their careers, their financial situations, stressed out about jobs, nervous about their relationships, feeling shame uh, about what they've given up for temporary pleasure. And so we're working, and we're working, and we're pushing to make things good for ourselves. And you're drinking from this glass. You know what you're doing? You're drinking from the glass of anxiety. You're drinking from the glass of shame. There are people here who, no matter how far they've come, how much they've been blessed, they're always looking around at one another. Because you see that person with the nicer car or the better house or the, or the more well-behaved kids. You're drinking from the glass of envy and covetousness. There are people here who are constantly dissatisfied. Dissatisfied with their spouses, dissatisfied with their children, dissatisfied with their place in the world. You're drinking from the glass of, dis- of self-satisfaction. These glasses are never, never going to fulfill you. They're just going to make you work and push and work and push. And you're going to be in unrest and anxiety. And, and your, your soul starts to corrode. And, and, and this is going to lead you to suffering and to greater desperation. How can you be rescued from all this? How can you be free? That's the third point, the wedding. We saw the, master, we saw the banquet. That's our hope, the possibility of joy that's going to last. We see the master, and that shows us our desperate case and our need that we are flawed masters and we're constantly pushing and moving and working and working and working to find joy for ourselves only to come up empty and dry. Well, the third point is the wedding, our complete assurance, lasting joy. How do we get lasting joy? Look at the context of the miracle. Jesus is at a wedding. And if you notice, the author intentionally excludes the bridegroom. There's no real mention of Jesus actually encountering the groom of the wedding. He's just really a backdrop. Why? What's the author trying to say? Here's what he's trying to say. Jesus is not only the true master of the banquet, but he's the true bridegroom. He's the true bridegroom. He's the true husband. How do you know this? His mother, in this passage, says, they have no more wine. In other words, do something. And Jesus' response is, woman, my time has not yet come. What does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says, my time has not yet come. If you've ever attended a wedding, you know, what do you think about when you're there? You're looking at, I mean, obviously you're there for the bride and the groom to become wed, but when you're there, you're constantly, you're looking around at the decorations, you're looking at the quartet, you're lo- and when you're at the reception, you're looking at the tables, you're looking at the centerpieces, you're looking at all the different things that are going on, the songs that are used. The, uh, everybody looks at the bulletin, how the bulletins have been made, Right? And we always say, it's natural, we always say, you know, we look at the decorations and we say, ooh, I, I, I would never have done that. You know, or we look at, uh, we say stuff and we say, ooh, I like that. We look at things and we say, oh, I've done that before, or I've seen that before, that's, that's really classy. Or sometimes we say, oh, I've seen that before, and it's really, really cheesy. And we collect everything from samples of bulletins to invitations, everything. When Jesus says, my time had not yet come, what do you think he's doing? He's looking at the ultimate wedding. He's sitting at this wedding, 
And he's looking forward to the wedding. And he's looking forward to the day of his joy, when he will be united with his bride, his ultimate joy, his cosmic joy. And while his mother is asking him to do something, he turns and he says, my time, that time has not yet come. The literal word for this is hour. This hour has not yet come. The hour of my joy, the hour of my glory. And then you see this throughout the book of John, all the way through up until John chapter 12, verse 23, all the way through verse 28. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this reason I came to this hour. The hour that Jesus was referring to, the hour of his glory, was what? It was his death. Jesus never boasts about his power, but rather he draws us into his weakness. The master of the earthly banquet, he suffered because he almost came undone. But Jesus' fate, so much worse. The true master of the banquet, on the cross, becomes completely, spiritually, physically undone. On the cross, Jesus is stripped naked, and you see his poverty. You see his weakness. He suffers the disgrace of men. I mean, they're not going to sue him. They mock him. They beat him. They curse him. Jesus suffers ultimate humiliation, the ultimate loss of reputation, complete loss. The prophets of the Old Testament, they awaited the day of ultimate joy. They looked ahead towards the day of ultimate joy. But throughout the Old Testament, you always see them crying out, why me? Why, God? Why me? But in the New Testament, you never see this. None of the apostles, none of the disciples ever cry out. You never see them in the New Testament saying, why me? Why is that? Except for one. Except for one. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? On the cross, what he's saying is, I'm completely, utterly ruined. My life is being poured out like wine. My life has run dry. I thirst, he says. I'm searching for spiritual reality at this moment because the Father's presence has left me. He's gone from me. He's forsaken me. The thing that brings me ultimate joy Union with my Father has run dry. On the cross, Jesus lost cosmic joy. Why? And this is the key. This is the key to spiritual discovery. Hebrews Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 answers that very question. For the joy set before him, Jesus, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the hand of God. He gave up cosmic joy for the joy set before him. What was that joy? The joy that was worth dying for. What was that joy? The joy that was worth giving up everything for. Psalm 147. The Lord delights. In other words, he takes joy in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Jesus went to the cross because you are his joy. Jesus suffered disgrace so that we would never, ever have to suffer the ultimate disgrace. Jesus died alone so that we would never have to die alone. Jesus was rejected cosmically by the Father. He was rejected by men, but he was rejected cosmically by the Father. Why? So that we would become accepted by the Father. Jesus was disowned by God so we could become owned by God. Jesus was emptied of cosmic joy so that we can be filled with cosmic joy. His blood was poured out like wine. 
In other words, he tasted the cup of God's wrath so that we can taste the wine of his grace, so we can know it. You know, when you drink wine, what does it do? It goes into your body, and your body digests it, and, and then it goes right in and starts to take effect. That's what it means. When the gospel comes in, it doesn't lie dormant. It transforms immediately. It takes over. If you, like me, often run empty, you know, if you've seen me over the course of the last two and a half years, my life goes from like full tank to empty. And it's just that role, it's been like that for two and a half years because when anxieties creep in, you start to run empty and you start to get down. You know what you're doing? It's because I'm looking at myself. I'm looking at the things, my, the, my fears, my anxieties. Um, all of these pleasures, all of the things that you seek for joy in the world, they're just replacements, right, for the ultimate joy in our lives. Because everything else in the world, and this is how you know if you're looking at something that's not what, what, who Jesus is, it causes you to pay a price for it. We're going to pay a price. And, these, and ultimately the joy runs out. It never lasts. But Jesus came at the ultimate price, his own life. And that's the assurance of love and grace so that we can experience redeeming joy at no cost. It's free. It's just given. It doesn't take a lot of work to taste your body just does it. You're given the wine. It's given to you freely. You taste, and your body just does it. It's free. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the wine of his grace. And we're invited to come right now, just as we are. You know, what's the one prerequisite to experiencing real joy then? It's to come and say, Lord, I'm dry is to be able to come. I mean, if you're not dry, you're not going to come. That means we have to be hurting when we walk in. It's to come and say, Lord, I'm dry without you. It's to say, Lord, I'm empty without you. It's to say, Lord, I'm anxious without you. It's to say, Lord, I'm afraid and I'm poor and I'm thirsty and I'm dissatisfied without you. Let me drink of Jesus today. 